Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. First, we're just going to start off by thanking our most recent Patreon contributors. Thank you guys so much. This week, we had Amy Beth. We had Allison, Lorian, Madeline, Joshua, Brenda, Dan, Stacy, Jeff, and Sage today, and Marlene. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you guys so much. If you'd like to donate and listen to our bonus content that we have up there, it's patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. So, Rachel, did you watch um, the latest episode of, um, what is it, The Assassination of Gianni Versace? I did. <laughs> I did. This show is a mess. It's a fucking mess. And I was trying to give it the benefit of the doubt last week when we did our recap. Right. But it I'm, kind of went, it took even a further step back for me this week. Yeah. I, I, I just feel like I don't like the nonlinear storytelling in this particular instance. Right. I don't mind nonlinear storytelling when it's effective, but I don't feel like it's, there's any sort of merit to it. No. Um, this way. And there's also a problem for me with the fantasy versus reality. There's no real clear cut to, Delineation. Like delineation between the two like right i just am never if i didn't know the case very well i would be more confused than i am right but because i do i feel like i'm able to be like hey i just also feel like there were also some like pretty blatant um sort of american psycho ripoffs that are just sort of cliches at this point right. that i feel like you know it doesn't have to be like why, like, Patrick Bateman doesn't need to be the catch-all for charming, handsome, creepy guy. Like, and 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 Andrew Kanan in, in this show has no charm. He has no charm. And that's a problem for Even me. though I like the actor a lot. I, think I like the actor, too, and good. I feel like he's doing a, the best job he can with the material. I think everyone material. is with yeah. the material. But uh, for me, I feel like I always want to have a, an uncomfortable... Um, like of the villain yeah <laughs> do you know what i mean like yeah. and i feel like they're just selling him as this huge fucking loser right where it's like he got somewhere because of some kind of charm he might have had even if people found him out eventually right but we're not seeing any of that like and that's what people have to realize is that like that's what makes <clears throat> serial killers and predators one of the things so frightening is because they can be anyone because yeah. they are they're likable in some way right yeah because they have enough charisma to con people in this way um i feel like the we talked about this in the johnny versace um episode we did yeah. that ryan murphy was really trying to play up that this was uh some kind of gay conspiracy or a, a conspiracy against gay people like, like as far a, as the cops go. And I feel like this episode, they're really pushing that element a bit with his relationship with his boyfriend. Like almost really selling home the point like, hey, not all gay people are promiscuous. And uh, these two really loved each other and the boyfriend, which is fine. But it was like, did we really need a whole episode to kind of get that across? Because they have the whole scene where he's like fucking the other guys while by Versace is working. Right. And then it was like at the end they go to the club to like pick up guys again and he's like, no, I want to... Do you know what I mean? It's just I, I just like... don't know what this show wants to be. Is it about right. Versace's life or is it about Andrew Cunanan? Right. I it's just like all they... over the place. I don't feel like their stories mesh well together because they didn't know each other. Right. So it doesn't make sense. 
how I would have done the show, because obviously that's so easy for me to say since I didn't put my blood, sweat, and tears into writing right. and directing and producing this show. Um, how I, you know, if in a perfect, in my perfect idea of what I thought the show should be like, I would have thought it would have been better to have it be a linear retelling of the story and to just focus on Andrew Cunanan because he's the mystery. Yeah. He's the compelling part. Not that, I mean, Versace's life is compelling in its own right. Right. But the story of his murder is, is only interesting from Andrew Cunanan's point of view because Because we don't know him. We don't know him. Right. I mean, I don't mind if they had started off with the murder and then it flashes back to the beginning. Yeah. I don't mind. Uh, And you know, certainly I would be interested in any fantasy he had about Versace or knowing him or having met him. All of those things they kind of touched on throughout the the first two episodes. Yeah. Um, But yeah. Also, I feel like we've still, we, we still haven't gotten to any of the crimes that happened before Versace. I mean, there was a scene, I guess, where he stole the car, but that was sort of vague, but we haven't, I think even like there was like a news story where someone said something like the murder of, the guy the, in Chicago. Yeah. But we haven't, I mean, there's like a real story here <laughs> that happened in order murders that happened before. Right. And I'm, I'm guessing we're going to get to them, but it's just a confusing way. It's confusing to people who don't know the story. Right. Are they going to be shocked when all of a sudden there's all, there was like four other murders that happened right. previous. I don't know. It is a weird thing. The it, Versace focus I think is misguided at this point. I just don't, it doesn't, it takes me out of the story almost when, not that I don't care about Versace's life. I do too. It just takes me out of the story. But I also think that, like you said before, there isn't anything, Andrew Cunanan isn't menacing enough or he doesn't scare me enough in this. Right. He's not scary enough. And I feel like that's because we don't know what he's done yet technically in this show. Like we know if we have any knowledge of the case. Um, but yeah, he's not scary enough and he's not likable enough. There's like nothing. And then the scene with the, the older man, that was, that was the only scene that I liked in this episode. I did like that scene because it was really creepy and I think they did a good job with it where you're not sure, is he going to kill this guy or not? I got really scared when he stabbed a hole in the tape. I did too. I, I was, was like, oh, start how did you just do that? Right. I mean, that was pretty strategic. Like, that was a good move. It was creepy. <laughs> that was a good scene. I that was a that good scene. scene and Easy Lover was playing. Right. But then the guy, I also was unsure if that really happened. Although I do right. know from my research when I did that episode, he was very involved in that scene. In the BDSM. In the BDSM scene. And it kind of had pushed the envelope. Or push the line, not envelope. That's a little right. Bit too much. Where he'd get a little too zealous. So maybe and... um, that was sort of a call from that. Um, the other thing I did like sometimes is the music. It's always like uh, very retro for me to hear like Lisa Stansfield. <laughs> I, <laughs> like, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, it's I know what like, you mean. But, right. but I don't, sometimes I think with Ryan Murphy things, and I always like we were talking about this a bit before I'm always very into his subject matters, but I don't like the execution of them sometimes. Yeah. And I feel like that's the case with this one. Like there's these elements that you kind of like, like the music and the look. Right. Uh, there's like the nostalgia that's sort of like fun. Right. Um, right. But ultimately I'm going to finish watching this series. We're going to do it. We're going to recap the episodes. This is a shorter recap this week. Right. Cause we have a long, and nothing really happened this week. Really? Right. No, I just, 
this is such a crazy story. Andrew Cunanan's story is so crazy that I feel like I'm. When this ended, I was like, that's it. It felt like it felt like the cold open was the whole show kind of. Right. Like, and it was a 10 minute cold open too. Right. Uh, I, I don't know. It's a mess. It was not good for me. Um, I feel like the OJ one was done so much better, I even though that was che- cheesy and funny and had all those kind of elements too. It was just much more compelling and well done. The narrative. It was tense. And yeah. I know the OJ story. Right. So, But that, for some reason, the OJ one I thought was brilliant. I mean, I loved, I watched every moment of it. I loved right. every moment of it. I was riveted by it. I couldn't wait for the next week. Well, the interesting thing I think, like my favorite part of the OJ one is I really liked the focus on um, Marsha Clark's story. Me too. Because that's sort of something I don't think you really knew if you followed OJ. I mean, you might have known some of it, but it was like a good thing to see. It was I think. good. And this one where it's like, we're not, who are we rooting for here? Like, obviously, yes, Versace gets murdered. He's a, you know, but I i don't even feel a connection to him. I don't, I don't feel like a connection to anybody. I don't either. Rooting against or for right. at this point. And that's weird to me. I mean, and Marsha was such a good example of someone to root for who really was a focal point right. in the OJ uh, series because she was, they humanized her and she had never been yes. humanized. She right. wasn't allowed to be human. I mean, during I the cried trial. during oh. some of her moments. Oh my God. It Me was too. really upsetting. It was, yeah, it was, but, uh, yeah. Great. So I don't feel like that connection yet. I don't either. So and maybe third time's a charm. We'll give it next, <laughs> next week. We'll see what happens, what he does with it. Uh, uh I mean, I do give my, Ryan Murphy credit for getting a little, uh, butt fucking on screen. I was very happy to see that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And we also also discovered that Brendan used to like the song Gloria when he was a little kid. Oh, I mean, it's a great song. Yeah. So that was when Andrew was singing, right? In the car. He was singing it in the car. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't like those kind of moments and and things like, oh, like, I feel like that was like, let's humanize him. But it was a little shallow. Right. Yeah. Like he's just a dork who sings Gloria at the top of his lungs in the car. Well, the other thing that really irritated me, like I said before, there was like a few blatant sort of like too too much of like rip off of like a Patrick Bateman aesthetic right. where he was in the club Andrew Cunanan's in the club in this one scene and the guy's like what do you do and he oh, goes yeah. I'm a serial killer and then he's like re-says it but it's like it doesn't even sound similar <laughs> he's no. like actually I'm a fashion student like it wasn't something like that sounded like it it just was dumb and yeah then but then he's, also he's not a serial killer in my mind he's, he's a, a spree, spree killer. killer and there's a difference i'll f- i'll fucking mansplain you i will serial killer explain you all day he is a spree killer technically right so the um the other thing that he said in that scene he said i'm gonna be the most likely to be remembered which Ugh. It was cheesy, but it would have been more powerful had we known in the series that that was what he was voted for in high school. But the audience doesn't know that, so it just seems like, what? Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, You can definitely... Share your thoughts with us on what you think of I'm it. I'm curious on, to see uh, what our listeners our think Facebook of the show. Fan, our fa- friend page? Facebook friend page, right? Or- I don't really see a lot of people talking about it on Twitter. So no. That- so you can go there. And there's other fun discussions going on. And people share stories and yeah. um, cases that we should talk about and cases we have talked about. Right. Um, so let's get to... Um, let's get to our main story. Our main story this week. Yeah. I'm going back to old Hollywood. And I'm pretty sure I, I I didn't look to see but I'm pretty sure this might be uh, a Hollywood Babylon um, story from the Kenneth Anger 
Anger? Anger? Anger. Anger. I always said Anger. <clears throat> uh, book. Um, anyways, this is uh, going old school again because we have actually been doing a lot of more recent-ish cases lately. So this is a definite old Hollywood story. Uh, it is about the director, William Desmond Taylor, who is pretty much unknown these days, but was a popular figure in the Hollywood uh, early days, like the silent film era, 1910s to early 20s. He was a pretty mysterious guy himself. And um, before he came to Hollywood, he was in numerous things. He was an antique dealer. He panned for gold. He was in the British and Canadian armies, maybe during World War One. Um, he was from Ireland, but he kind of had this persona of the um, genteel English gentleman. Yeah. So he kind of was sprucing himself up a bit. There's nothing wrong with that. He was pretty much described in a lot of the things I said as sort of a liar, <laughs> like someone who was not exactly 100% forthcoming. Yeah. He was also, he was many things. He was a deadbeat dad. He was a drifter. Uh, he flocked to Hollywood in these early days of Hollywood. And I think if you listen to our um, Fatty Arbuckle story, you might recall that this was a period before celebrity scandals was really big. We didn't really know much about the actors or the people making movies. So he kind of drifted into this world. It was a scandal-free period in Hollywood, believe it or not. And much like Hollywood, he kind of reinvented himself every day. This is a person who really didn't have like a solid persona. He kind of fit in where he could and how he could. And no one, I don't think, I don't think anyone really knew him a hundred percent. Um, but the greatest mystery regarding <laughs> William Desmond Taylor, I'm laughing because this is so cheesy and I actually wrote it, was his murder. Yes, that's a melodramatic line that I actually wrote down. I like it. Thank you. Uh, his murder happened on uh, February 2nd or possibly February 1st, 1922. And the reason I'm doing it is because it is coming up on that date. So it's sort of like uh, an anniversary of yeah. some sorts. <clears throat> um, this actually was less than a year after the Fatty Arbuckle, uh, you know, death of that woman, Virginia right. Rape, or Rap, Rappé, Rappé, I don't think we ever, we don't, we, don't know how to say, we don't know how to say any last names, okay? Um, so this is, I think that happened in September, because it was like Labor Day weekend. Mm -hmm. So this is February, so less than six months, and I think the trials were going on at this period. Yeah. Um, so this is like the start the Fatty Arbuckle started this whole sensationalized um, yellow journalism with the Hearst newspapers. And this was kind of a fucking double whammy, like, you know, less than like, or whatever, six months later, another they already huge, have a new story. There's a new huge Hollywood scandal. Um, but let's go back to the very beginning and get a little info on this guy. William Desmond Taylor was born William Cunningham Dean Tanner on April 26, 1872 in Carlow, Ireland. In 1890, Taylor actually left Ireland to go to a dude ranch in Kansas. This was actually a, a trend at the time when Irish and English immigrants were coming to America. Like uh, they wanted to be cowboys? Yeah, or as, as they called it, gentlemen farmers, which is like, what? What? <laughs> uh, in Kansas. At some point, he kind of became reacquainted with acting, something that he had liked a lot in growing up in, in school. And at that point, he moved to New York City to kind of pursue acting. While he was there, he married a woman named Ethel May Harrison. 
And as a couple, they were pretty big up in high society uh, New York. I think she might have come from some kind of money. They were involved in clubs. Uh, he was kind of known as a ladies' man and a drinker, like a real pot partier, but he was also sort of recognized as someone who had a dark side and sort of a depressed nature. Um, at on, In 1908, which I think is shortly after marrying her at the age of 36, he actually deserted his wife, and they had a young daughter at the time who I think was only two years old. Damn. Uh, after he he basically disappeared at this point, which is crazy. To be a chameleon? Um, well, we'll get to that. He disappeared at this point, and friends at the time actually said that this was something he had suffered from his whole life, mental lapses. Uh, and the family thought that when he did disappear, it was just another one of his mental lapses or amnesia where he had forgotten what his life was or where did he was. Did he say that he had these mental lapses? Exactly. Uh, his wife actually got a divorce in 1912 based on this desertion. And there's no medical condition that explains what happened with him, but he had had numerous affairs and gotten into trouble his whole life. And the mental lapses always kind of coincided with him being in trouble for something. Sounds like someone I used to know. <laughs> right. Um, it's like, it's like celebrities nowadays going to for sex addiction. Right. Like it's the new, it used to be called mental lapses where they just left. Look, every breaking bad fan knows that the fugue state is a fucking lie. Oh, okay. Um, so, Anyways, like I said, that's what his family thought had happened when he had basically abandoned his wife and child. He uh, vanished and he he reappeared finally in Los Angeles with a new name and English accent. Wait, so, he didn't have an English? He had an Irish no, accent? No, he had an Irish accent. So okay. he kind of reinvented himself as the, the you know, statesly, upper crusty English gentleman when he, he uh, relocated to Los Angeles. And gone was like the Irish brogue i don't know <laughs> so he's like a less interesting madonna kind of <laughs> um so this is when he changed his name to william desmond taylor and started his new life in hollywood now in hollywood he initially got his start working as an actor in 1913 he appeared in uh several films including one opposite a woman named margaret gibson who was a popular screen actress or silent screen actress at the time uh, at some point, he uh, started directing. He directed, I think, over 50 films, but none of them at all are anything you would remember, even if you were, like, the biggest film snob. Yeah. There's just nothing. I mean, um, at some point during this period, he did supposedly enlist in the Canadian um, Expeditionary Force and served in some capacity during World War One. But nothing is very clear on that. There was like a million things that I saw in research that he had done, but it was just like nothing major. So I don't even know if it's necessarily true because who the hell knows with him? He was also um, at this point, I mean, this is how big he was at the time. He was honored by the Motion Picture Directors Association with a formal banquet. For, for directing. Yeah. So he was like a director of note, like even though we don't know who he is, he was pretty big at the time. He worked with like numerous popular stars who you probably do know, including Mary Pickford, Wallace Reed. And um, one of the other ones, one of his big films was Anne of Green Gables, which starred Mary Miles Minter, who we will be coming back to later in this story, as well as the first person I mentioned, um, Margaret Gibson. So he seems kind of like weird and dickish up until this point yeah. like maybe like old school fuck boy or right. something 
Uh, but he did have sort of some nice side to him that we talked that were sort of uh, brought up, brought to my attention through my research. Uh, he, his ex-wife and daughter actually did find him again by seeing him in a film called Captain Alvarez as an actor. And deported, according to the thing I read, his wife, Ethel, while watching the movie said, that's your father. Um, <laughs> I insane. hope she was like, that's your father. <laughs> that's your father, by the way. Uh, and then she wrote to the studio trying to get in touch with him and Taylor at that point did go to New York city and met his daughter and started to try to build a relationship with her and made her his legal heir. So I guess he kind of started taking care of, he also had, um, someone from his brother's family at the time torn up his turn up at his doorstep, you know, broke. And he promised that he would pay that person. I think it was the ex wife or wife. I think the brother also abandoned his wife in a similar fashion, uh, by the way. And he said, I will pay you $50 a month until my death. Uh, the other thing, he was very close to an actress, Mabel Normand, who you might remember was also someone who worked with Fatty Arbuckle. Uh, she was heavily into drugs, including opium. Uh, and he was very good friend to her and was trying to help her kick her drug habit and even went so far as to kind of fight with her drug dealers. So, his career was going pretty well. He, you know, had a pretty good life going in, in Los Angeles. He had money. Uh, but at some point, as you might have known, because you know he gets murder, <laughs> his luck runs out. Like when, when's this coming? Wait, what? Uh, and on Fe- February 2nd, 1922, he was found dead in his Westlake Park bungalow. Do you know where Westlake Park is? Isn't that by like Langer's? Yeah, it's by like MacArthur, MacArthur Park. Park. Right. Yeah. So it's sort of in between like, filipino town and koreatown like yeah. it's in uh but it's just north of um macarthur park right it took so long t- to bake <laughs> sorry i don't think i have uh, the recipe again no that's an amazing song one of my all-time favorite it's songs. a great song the full 17 minute version it's an Thank insane you. yeah okay the best so as i mentioned earlier this happened after the whole Fatty Arbuckle scandal went down and Hollywood was literally reeling from this sort of, you know, the newspapers selling them as this fucking gutter of sin and like right. sex and like crime and just drinking and, and up until this point, you have to realize there was nothing. It's not like it is now with TMZ. Right. At this point, it was nothing. And all of a sudden it was like you had like the mothers against da 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 like protesting Hollywood and people were up in arms just being like really puritanical. Uh, this is also during prohibition. So it was like, these people are drinking and partying. It was just all a negative thing. So Hollywood was freaking the fuck out yeah. because obviously they're making a ton of money. And the last thing they need to do is have, you know, their biggest stars uh, or anyone. Uh, Taylor was 49 when he was murdered at the time. He was also, uh, the head of the Motion Pictures Directors Association. So he was pretty up there as far as being a representative of Hollywood. Uh, and he was also, like I said, had that reputation as being a Brit. So he had sort of, um, he wasn't like Fatty Arbuckle who were kind of vulgar and right. known to be kind of more lower class, I guess. Yeah. So this was like an especially big blow. Um, and like I said before, William Randolph Hearst was exploring the fuck out of this story as well as the fatty arbuckle thing. Uh, and so here's the rundown of kind of what we know that led up to the, to his body being found on February 1st, 
um, which is the night before his body was found. The director um, was meeting with his friend, Mabel Normand, according to a neighbor. And I don't know how, oh, actually Mabel was um, interviewed after the murder. So this is how we have some of this information. They were drinking orange blossom, orange blossom gin cocktails, which sound amazing. She dropped by to his apartment actually to pick up two books. One was a study on Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra. I don't know how to say that. Uh, And at that point, they started talking about various things that Taylor was sort of worried about, things that were on his mind, Uh, one of which was his ex-valet or secretary, a man named Edward Sands, had disappeared after forging his checks. And his butler, uh, a man named Henry Peavy, had been arrested recently for soliciting young boys in the park and he had to bail him out of jail. Wow. Okay. So, uh, Mabel also retrieved a copy of Freud's interpretation of dreams and she left with those two books. Um, and that was about seven forty-five PM that night. He walked her to her car. He, um, left his door unlocked to the Alvarado street bungalow. According to her, he kind of just left the door open, walked right. her to the car which was a chauffeur-driven car. They blew kisses at each other, blah, 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 blah. Um, And so with the exception of whoever murdered him, Mabel Norman is on record as being the last person to see him alive. So he returned to his apartment about 8 p.m. His neighbors, a woman named uh, Faith McLean and her husband, said that about 8 p.m. they heard a car backfire. They went to the window and they saw what they thought was a man in a long coat wearing like uh, a scarf wrapped around his head and a collar turned up and a plaid cap sort of covering their uh, that person's face, leaving his apartment and kind of casually just, you know, walking out as if he had just forgotten something. Like it was... It not like a rush, suspicious, suspicious thing. She just heard the backfire and saw this person who she didn't know leaving the apartment. Later, she said the person had, uh, this is a quote, a feminine walk and was funny looking, also a quote. More than a decade later, actually, uh, during a grand jury testimony, when pressed for more information, she said she couldn't be certain if it was actually a man that she saw. Uh, another neighbor, Hazel Gillon, stated that she also saw a dark figure after hearing the car backfire. Um, I think which was especially noticeable because it was like a really quiet street. It's actually like Alvarado Street, which to me is not a quiet street, but I guess maybe it was back then. Back then it was probably. Uh, And nothing, there was nothing, it was quiet all night um, until 7.30 a.m. And that was when uh, the houseman, our butler, I've heard a few things that he's been called, Henry Peavy, arrived and found um, William's body lying dead in the living room. Uh, apparently, PB screamed and ran out into the the courtyard, and chaos basically immediately uh, ensued. Um, it was actually the studio. PB called the studio before he called the police, which I think the studio that uh, Taylor worked for was Paramount Studios. PB didn't want to call the police after what he just right. went through. <laughs> uh, Taylor was lying in a pool of blood, but at that point, they didn't really know what had happened. The investigation and the whole scene from the start was basically like chaos and a circus. Uh, as I said, before the police arrived, there was already a crowd of people descending on the place and wow. in the crime scene. Um, a crowd had gathered inside and actually someone identified himself as a doctor and made 
an examination of the body and declared that Taylor had died of a stomach hemorrhage. What? Uh, the doctor was never seen again at this point. Um, some people speculate that he was embarrassed by the diagnosis. What, some guy just comes up in the right. crowd? Like, I'm a do- a Is there a doctor in the house? Um, at some point when the investigators came, they rolled the body over, and it was quite obvious that he had been shot through the back um, with a small caliber, caliber pistol, which was not at the scene. So this guy literally did nothing to examine him, but just saw him in a pool of blood on, on his stomach, I guess, and assumed. But why would you hemorrhage? You don't hemorrhage from your stomach that no. way. Like, it's insane. The other, as I mentioned before, like, the, the police weren't called until 12 hours after he probably died. And as I said, like, Paramount Studios was called before even the police yeah. were called. Yeah. Uh, so there was a lot of speculation going on that Paramount wanted to get to the scene first and destroy any evidence or anything that would make make him look, you know, in a poor light, like, like a vibrator. Or yeah, something. So all of his dildos and his whole butt plug pug, butt plug collection was burned That's in what the I'm fire. Saying. Like right. when I think of like right. things that'll incriminate him, delete <clears throat> some of the things history. that they think they burned were uh, letters, which I'll get into a little later ladies lingerie illegal booze and and stuff like that because like i said prohibition prohibition. so they're looking for things that would make him look sinister in any way like it's much better for them if it's like an innocent victim whatever especially with all the fatty arbuckle stuff that's happening right so there's even speculation that paramount instructed pv to clean up the blood in the apartment but i didn't see like a lot of evidence of that but basically the scene is chaos um Another interesting fact, at this point, uh, only after he was murdered did people in Hollywood find out that he, his name wasn't really William Desmond Taylor. They found out his whole previous life and that his real name was um, William Cunningham Dean Tanner. Busted. And they found out all about you know his life, With all his of his kid, life and his kid. Yeah, yeah. So none of that was known to people he knew in Hollywood. It was like a complete surprise. And at the time... It was a big thing in the newspapers too, because yeah. it added this extra, like, who is this guy? Like, well, that would be a weird thing today <clears throat> if some celebrity right. we knew today, a modern celebrity, was murdered, and then you find out, oh, by the way, that's not even their real name. They had this whole other life. And right. Well, the name change we usually know. Yeah. Like, we yeah, do. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So if it was like something we didn't know, and then it was attached to this whole other right. second life, that would be weird. Um, now, like I said before, the studio would love for it to just be an innocent victim situation, yeah. but. The robbery motive just didn't line up and was ruled out almost immediately. There wasn't anything taken from the house. Right. In his pockets, he had a wallet with $78 in cash. He had a silver cigarette case, um, a really nice pocket watch. A I want a silver knife. cigarette case. I know, right? Uh, and he even had like a locket with Mabel Norman's photograph in it. There was also a two-carat diamond ring on his finger. Um, so with all of that evidence, it seemed pretty clear that robbery was not the motive. Uh, one suspicious thing, which I will get into later, was a large sum of cash had been drawn from his accountant the day before, and at that point was missing and never and wasn't accounted for. It wasn't in his house anywhere, so yeah. no one knew where that cash was. But police quickly kind of jumped to thinking it was a crime of passion. That was yeah. sort of their initial uh, thought. Um, there was a lot of rumors at that time swirling around, including the relation to Mabel Norman's drug dealers. Uh, and as I said before, he had the connection to that Butler or PV. So there was like the sex perversion kind of angle Mm -hmm. being explored. 
And then another interesting thing I thought was interesting, there was also people even making um, or alleging that Taylor was a part of occult practices and a member of the Ordo Templis Orientis cult, which was started by uh, Satanist Aleister Crowley. Cool. I know. I was like, more of this, please. <laughs> um, and I, I guess there was, you know, someone had seen Taylor in opium dens and in those dens, men smoked the pipe and had sex with each other. Uh, so some people were speculating it was, a, and this is a quote, a homosexual revenge killing. <laughs> okay. Damn. Yeah. So, I mean, who knows? As opposed to there a regular, like, he, regular old heterosexual yeah. revenge killing. Yeah, a homosexual. There's like a huge difference. There's always something very loaded when someone uses the word homosexual. Like oh, it totally. Always seems like it just homosexual. Reeks. He was a homosexual. Yeah, it's very, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not good. Um, so, you know, this is a huge media circus, obviously. At the time, a Los Angeles undersheriff named Eugene Biscalis warned a reporter uh, and this is a quote coming from the sheriff's department, not Hollywood. The industry has been hurt. Stars have been ruined. Stockholders have lost millions of dollars. A lot of people are out of jobs and incensed enough to take a shot at you. So it's like, you know, we're something we're all familiar with. People threatening the media yeah. <laughs> with accusations of fake news. Uh, Robert Giroux, who wrote a book on this case, um, here's a quote from him. The studio seemed to be fearful that if certain aspects of the case were exposed, it would exasperate this pro uh, their problems. And King Vidor, who was a director during Hollywood early, early days, a famous director, he kind of became obsessed with the case. Yeah. Uh, and there's another famous book that's written based on a lot of his research. It's not written by him, but the, the person who wrote it um, used his research. In 1968, he said, last year, I interviewed a Los Angeles police detective, now retired, who had been assigned to the case immediately after the murder. He told me we were doing all right. And then before a week was out, we got word to lay off. So in addition to the Fatty Arbuckle trial, um, there was also some famous drug addictions happening at the time, including Wallace Reed and Mary Pickford's brother, Jack. Uh, there was the, another death by poison of um, an actress named Olive Thomas who was married to Jack Pickford uh, so like I said before the women's clubs and religious groups were already up in arms uh, and when this murder happened it makes sense that maybe the Los Angeles Police Department were being kind of you know encouraged to just lay off yeah. and maybe not do much regarding investigating the crime uh, and as far as you know I can tell the murder was kind of just swept under the rug. I mean, it is a cold case to this day. It's never wow. been solved. Um, it, can I just say that it would just fucking suck to be murdered in like 1930 or whatever. Right before there's really any way to gather evidence or right. yeah. when people are just walking around with like magnifying glasses and shit. Well, um, as much as the cops pushed it under the rug or whatever, Amateur sleuths and old Hollywood fanatics definitely kept this case going. And as yeah. I mentioned before, King Vitor. Uh, and then obviously with the advent of the internet, things kind of went next level with a lot of this. Really? Yeah. So uh, I'm going to get into now suspects. And there are a lot of New them. suspects. Well, these are all people involved in the case from the get-go. But people... Uh, uh, so there's a lot of them. Yeah. Like there's a lot of suspects. I'm wow. going to focus in on a few of them. Okay. Beauty should be good for you, and that's why we're excited to tell you about 
Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter is a clean makeup and skincare brand that started in 2013, disrupting the beauty industry by shedding a light on the need for stronger ingredient regulations in the personal care products that we use daily. Today, Beauty Counter is the leading clean beauty brand creating innovative and high-performing products that are safer and cleaner than even their like-minded competitors. So what do we mean by clean? Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in Beauty Counter's formulations. They call this their never list. You can learn more at beautycounter.com, where you're also going to want to check out their incredible products. Best of all, if you're a new customer and you order through March 15th, you'll get free shipping on your order of $100 or more when you use the code HOLLYWOOD. Once again, to get free shipping on your order of $100 or more, go to beautycounter.com and use the code HOLLYWOOD. As most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy, getting out of it is hard, especially if your credit score isn't great. Thankfully, now there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just your credit score and offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high-interest credit card debt. I know firsthand that there's nothing more frustrating than trying to pay something down and your payments are pretty much just paying off the interest. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They believe in you. The best part? Once the loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next business day. Over 400,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards or meet their financial goals. So free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. See why Upstart is top-ranked in their category with a 4.9 out of 5 rating on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash Hollywood to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash Hollywood. So we're only getting started here. (laughs) Sorry. I hope you're interested. (laughs) There was over a dozen people who were eventually named as suspects by the press and the police, like who were questioned initially by the police because they did do a cursory investigation. Like it just was very in-depth and kind of left alone. The first person I mentioned is Edward Sands, and that was uh, uh, William Desmond Taylor's valet um, before PV. Uh, Edward Sands is regularly described as a sociopath. His um, real name was Edward Snyder, And he's actually someone who also pretended to be British. Uh, He had a Cockney accent, but he was actually born in Ohio. Really? Yeah. So before Sands worked for William Desmond Taylor, he had a long history of fraud, embezzlement, forging checks. I mean, just a whole litany of fucking crimes along those kind of lines, like really small, petty theft, embezzlement. He's not a very honest person. No, he's 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 a scam artist. Um, he was hired at some point by Taylor. Uh, one of the articles I read was like, this was before <laughs> you could ch- check out people's criminal history for like a job, <laughs> clearly. Uh, and he was pretty devoted to Taylor, actually. Uh, there was no problems the first year. One person said that he seemed to adore uh, William, and he even offered William to be his slave for life, which honestly what? seems like a red flag to me. <laughs> he, um, wow. So in 1921, like I said, the first year was sort of without incident. In 1921, 
um, Taylor took a trip to Europe, and that was when Sands forged his first check from William. Uh, it was for $5,000. He also stole... That's a lot of money. <clears throat> right? He also stole and wrecked uh, Taylor's car while he was in Europe. He stole jewelry. He stole um, Russian gold-tipped cigarettes, which sound amazing to me. Oh, my God. In fact, uh, Taylor at some point came home and found those cigarettes crushed on the front porch like someone had smoked That's them. That's so rude. <clears throat> right, if you're going to really steal the cigarettes, at least be like sly about <clears throat> it. Right. I think at some point he maybe let uh, Sands go and he found the cigarettes on the porch so he knew that Sands had come back to the, bung- the bungalow to without his permission. To put them back. Yeah. So it was like a, a clear this like, fuck you. Yeah. bold. <laughs> um, at some point, Sands also mailed pawn tickets for the jewelry that he had stolen from Taylor back to Taylor and he mailed them under Taylor's real name, William C. Dean Tanner with a uh, Tanner with a note that said, so sorry to inconvenience you even temporarily also observe the lesson of the forced sale assets, a Merry Christmas and a happy prosperous new year's alias Jimmy V. So handwriting analysis confirmed that it was written by Sands but it's more importantly, it kind of shows that Sands knew his real name. He knew he's like he knew I have Taylor's this real on name, you. so he mailed this to him with his real name. Yeah, it's like a threat. <clears throat> it's a threat. Uh, one of Taylor's friends, a woman named Julia Crawford Iver, said there was never a more devoted man serving another man than this man Sands during the first year and a half of his service for Mr. Taylor. Mr. Taylor touched. Taylor trusted him with everything. Sands read everything he could find he used to study into the late hours of the night. And when Mr. Taylor told me of the various actions attributed to him, we all decided the man must have become deranged. Well, there's, it's got, I mean, it's a red flag when somebody says, I will be your slave and devoted to you. Totally. Um, In that circumstance. So before the murder, Taylor had um, some troubling phone calls, like people calling him late at night and hanging up. Uh, It seemed like, to him that someone was checking to see if he was home. Um, the night before his murder, I mentioned that he asked for 5,000 in cash that he kept and was never found, um, after his death. Uh, and that's one of the main things that people think indicate that Sands was the murderer because, uh, I think he, they're, they're assuming that he was being blackmailed by Sands right. to not reveal his identity. Right. Although he, he wasn't like a criminal. So I don't know why he would be that concerned about having his real name come out unless well, he was just embarrassed or humiliated. By I that think fact. it was just sort of a, um, symbol of sort of ownership. Like I know you, I know your secrets, right? <clears throat> not necessarily that he had a criminal past, but whatever skeletons he had in his right. closet. And maybe 5,000 wasn't that much for him. Yeah. Um, now he did have an alibi. Actually, he had signed into work at a lumber yard in Oakland, California on the day of the murder. So that's sort of evidence pointing in his innocence or, or right. in the direction of his innocence. Um, now there are reports that Sands was actually found dead from a suicide in Connecticut shortly after that, but the district attorney at the time kept it a secret from the press to throw suspicion away from people who were in the movie industry because this guy was not related to the movie industry, right? Uh, so he was basically continuing a manhunt for someone who was already dead. That's the speculation that this guy was had committed suicide, and this guy was still acting. The district attorney was still acting like they're searching for the killer. 
just to kind of deflect. Like how OJ's possible. like, I'm going to keep yeah, searching exactly. for the killer. Which is a crazy theory. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and there's no evidence of that being true. It's something I read. <laughs> Don't at me. <laughs> uh, so, okay, that's the first suspect. The second suspect is the butler, Henry Peavy. The butler did it. Hey. Uh, I love that there's a butler for an apartment a bungalow yeah. like it doesn't seem that's so right. extra but maybe that's just the name yet it's very extra so henry Peavy was the man who was hired after sands was finally kind of officially fired for stealing and whatnot he is also the person as i said before who found um taylor's body um some of the things that uh, by the way Peavy was black and a lot of the the newspaper stories were about his flashy golf costumes and his uh, saying that he wore this stuff but didn't play golf. Um, he, like I said before, he had a criminal record and had been arrested shortly before the murder, I think three days, uh, for social vagrancy and lewd and dissolute behavior. Was it just that he was <clears throat> picking up men or were they young well, boys? Well, no. There's like a few, there's like a lot of uncertainty with all these things um, because who knows how people over extra <laughs> charges well, that's what I'm right saying is like gay charges i feel like anything gay related at that period in time was just considered deviant. the most perverted and deviant thing right. ever he was charged with indecent exposure but that can be almost anything at that time it could be cruising in like a public you know like a right. gay cruising area or whatever it could also just be peeing outside or or being in a um, whites-only bathroom. There was also some speculation that Peavy was either Taylor's lover or was perhaps procuring uh, boys for, for him. For him. Um, but like I said, this is like a big tabloid story, so there's just like a lot of misinformation, right. and uh, sort of people are always going to go for that kind of lewd and lascivious type behavior that they think is going to be whatever sell pit newspapers um so according to uh this quote by uh, i can't remember where is it oh okay this is a really good story <laughs> sorry even though the police decided after questioning that he was definitely not the murderer there was a correspondent from the new york daily news named florabelle muir and she came to her own conclusion that he was the murderer, but there's no, she, for, for no reason. She's just like, I yeah. have a feeling. She's like a, she's like a feisty woman reporter who's going to break some big case basically. So she came up with like the most harebrained scheme I've ever fucking heard of. Mm -hmm. uh, she thought that she was going to um, trick Peavy into confessing in her mind. Um, and, and it's said that she learned this from the movies. Blacks were deathly afraid of ghosts. This is her reasoning behind her plan. This is not my theory or why I'm saying I, this is not my opinion. Her, in, in her opinion, in. blacks were deathly afraid of ghosts. So I'm sorry. With the help of two men, one was named Frank Carson. And oh, one was don't named tell me. Al don't tell me. She offered PV $10 if he would go with her to Hollywood Park Cemetery where he was buried to help her identify where uh, Taylor's grave was. If these two... Okay. <laughs> okay. I, can uh, I just say what I think's going to happen? Well, I mean, it's very clear what's going to happen. But I'm saying if they're wearing sheets, if they're wearing bed sheets, I'm going to be so upset right now. Well, you're prepared to be upset. Okay. Okay. So Weinshank went ahead with a white sheet <laughs> and Muir and Carson drove with Peavy to the gravesite. 
Weinshank uh, actually came from like a very tough area of Chicago. So he kind of had a very different accent. Well, than, his name is Weinshank. Right. Than um, William Taylor did. So he uh, did at some point come ac- up across the group wearing the white sheet. <laughs> and he's in a Chicago accent. And in the Chicago accent, he cried out, I am the ghost of William Desmond Taylor. You murdered me. Confess, PV. Shut the fuck up. To Henry Peavy's credit, he laughed out loud. He lulled. Uh, then he cursed them the fuck out, which is great. Um, so as I said before, Muir did not realize that Taylor had a very distinct British accent. And Weinshank, as I said before, had like the voice of a hoodlum. And he's actually one of the Chicago mobsters who were later gunned down in the St. Valentine's Day massacre. So really? that's how much of a gangster voice this guy had. I mean, this is like unbelievably stupid um so yeah that was her big attempt that's like more embarrassing than um geraldo opening al capone's fault (laughs) it's up there yeah it's pretty insane right like it's like out of a bad scooby-doo comic or something with the sheets like like, come on um, sadly, PV did die in 1931, which is about 10 years later in a San Francisco asylum. In 1931? Right. Um, and he had syphilis-related dementia. Okay. So Mabel Normand is the next subject we're going to get into. Uh, as I mentioned before, she was a popular comedic actress at the time. She worked a lot with Charlie Chaplin and, and Fatty Arbuckle. According to Robert Giroux, um, who wrote the book on William Taylor, Taylor was really in love with Mabel Normand. Um, she trusted him so much that um, she approached him to help her with her uh, cocaine dependency and an opioid dependency. Um, based on her statements to the investigation and to the uh, to the investigators, she relapsed a lot, and this was really hard for Taylor because he did care for her. So, and I mean, I'm sure as you know, yeah, watching someone. It repeatedly sucks. relapse and go back and forth is really difficult. Probably at that time too, there wasn't really programs, what, what right? This? 21. Oh yeah. So there's a, nothing. It wasn't invented till it's 35. all on your own basically, or maybe you have a doctor helping you. You're still you, going right? to sanitariums right, at right. that point. Um, at some point after this, he did get frustrated and he actually met with federal prosecutors to kind of um, see what he could do about maybe filing um, charges against her suppliers which is a pretty crazy, bold move, right? Yeah. But at the time, it's like, what else are you going to do? Well, yeah, like you just said, there's there was no, there wasn't any right. treatment facilities then. So a lot of people speculate that his going to the police or going to federal prosecutors to try to do this is maybe what led to a contract killer assassinating the director Um Although Mabel Norman was interviewed as a suspect, I don't think anyone seriously thought she actually did it, but it was maybe connected to her and her lifestyle and the people she knew through the drug addiction. I mean, Um, couldn't you just get cocaine from a pharmacy back then? I don't know. Can someone write us in? I mean, it might have been legal, but you could still have been addicted. But I guess if he's going to prosecutors, then it must have... Well, prohibition, would they have not... Would they have not... done cocaine I, I don't know i don't know i guess she was tell an us. alcoholic Please cocaine explain us. us we want to yeah, know i want to know so she was subjected to a grueling inter- interrogation as i said and it pretty much ruled her out as a um, suspect 
But uh, anyways, for the rest of her life, her her career kind of slowed after that. She never really had a big career in, in talkies. Yeah. Um, her addiction was revealed at some point, so the audience kind of didn't really have sympathy for her. And especially as a woman at that time, if you're known as a drug addict, I mean, forget in Hollywood, it. forget it. It's It was pretty Still much done. Still to this day, forget right. it. I, it was basically considered a moral failing and... I feel like that's bullshit and it still kind of is seen that way. It's still seen that way, yeah. even though it is bullshit. Um, at his funeral, apparently she wept inconsolably. So they were very uh, they were close. close. He cared about her. And she died actually of tuberculosis in 1930. So nine years later, she was, I think she was pretty young. I think she might've been 38. Um, apparently her, her last words, which were actually a few days before she died were, uh, said to her friend, Julia Brew, Julia, do you think they'll ever find out who killed Bill Taylor? So that's a pretty sad end. Yeah. Um, okay. Now we're getting into some other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next suspect on our list is an actress. I mentioned her before. She played Anne of Green Gables, or she was in Anne of Green Gables um, that he directed. Right. Her name was Mary Miles Minter, and she, uh, she was a child star and a teen screen idol. Um, and her career had basically been guided by Taylor early on. He was sort of a mentor to her. She uh, was a classic um, abandoned by a father. Uh, and so she meets um, this director who had a daughter who was three years older than her. So it was sort of like both of them having this father-daughter relationship. Right. On his part, from all I can tell, it was completely an innocent thing she was a bit infatuated with him though and wanted more she wanted a daddy she wanted a daddy like old school daddy 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 uh love letters were some of the things that were found in his bungalow after the murder from from mary i'm Um, sorry how old was she again at the time of his murder she was 19 years old okay okay and he was 49 um, so this was another thing that reporters made a lot of hay out of. Yeah. <laughs> because that's a pretty that's a significant age difference. age difference. And you're just finding these love letters. You're not really investigating what he did at that point because you want it to be true, right? Of course. Uh, according to the letters, or based on the letters, according to her, it would have started when she was 17. Um, so that's a little more sketch. Yeah. Um, uh, Robert Giroux and King Veter both of the people I've mentioned before who were heavily involved investigating this crime on an amateur sort of sleuth level, they both dispute the allegation that those two had an affair. Um, They really think that this was an unrequited love by the teenager. Yeah. Uh, And he actually often said that he refused to see her. He told numerous people that he was constantly telling her, I'm too old for you, et cetera. So while being interviewed by police, Five days after his body was found, Mary Miles Minter said that following the murder, a friend of hers, um, who was a director and actor named Marshall Nealon, told her that Taylor had made several highly delusional statements about some of his social acquaintances, including her, during the weeks before his death. And she said that Naylor thought that Taylor had recently become insane. So that seems a little bit self-serving to Mm me. Um, So... Like I said, these passionate letters to Taylor from Minter were found in his apartment. They were printed in newspapers, and they pretty much shattered her screen image as well because she was sort of known as this innocent, sort of modest, wholesome girl. Yeah. And here she is sort of 
fawning seeming over this like old this guy. sort of like sex hungry uh yeah. whatever lolita and she was really vilified in the press which is also kind of unfair that's shitty um even if she was the stupid teen who was out, out of her league. 19-year-olds yeah. stupid. Right. Make I mean, stupid it's like decisions. a stupid decision. Not that you're um, stupid, but you... You, you know what I mean. You're yeah. inexperienced you and You make naive. dumber decisions <clears throat> when you're 19. So on the day of the murder, actually, according to a friend, um, they asked Taylor how Minton, Minter was, and he answered, she's all tonsillitis and temperament. So he knew she was a problem. Ed King, who was a special investigator with the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office at the time, was interviewed by a True Detective magazine in 1930, and he said that Taylor was troubled by this infatuation. Um, at the time, King had interviewed a man named Arthur Hoyt, who was a friend of Taylor's, and according to him, this is a quote, Taylor swore to Hoyt, Trailer swore Hoyt to secrecy, saying that if he could promise not to breathe into a living soul, he would tell him something that was causing him a great deal of worry. Mr. Taylor then told Mr. Hoyt that the dearest, sweetest little girl in the world was in love with him and that he was old enough to be her father. This little girl was madly in love with him, had been to his apartment the night before, coming at nearly three o'clock in the morning. She insisted on remaining. He had insisted on her going home, whereupon this little girl had cried and threatened that if he tried to put her out, she would scream and cause a scene. This, of course, Mr. Taylor wanted to avoid, as he had many friends in the neighborhood. He finally persuaded her to leave, driving her to her home. Mr. Taylor stated to his friend Hoyt that this little girl had become so infatuated with him that it was really becoming serious. He was worried and didn't know what to do about it. She stated that she had not seen him for a long time, the last time being on a street of Los Angeles. Mr. Taylor was in his car and she was in hers. They merely waved to each other. This statement was not true. We were able to prove that she had been in his apartment many times and had actually been there the night of the murder. Now, three long blonde hairs were found on Taylor's jacket and were determined by the police to be those of Mary Miles' mentor. Uh, and they matched them to hairs that, that she had left in a hairbrush um, at the studio. Taylor was uh, sort of meticulous about his clothes and hair and, and his jacket like being things. So it's sort of like... They speculate because the hairs were still there that it had to have happened after that night when he was murdered. Right. Because he was someone who wouldn't have left or whatever. I guess he would have. He would have taken a lint, he would have roller, taken a lint to roller to that shit. So I, I mentioned that they had seen each other in the car. There was um, people who said that may have seen each other two days driving on the day of the murder. Uh, the one where they passed and then another one where they actually got out and greeted each other. And it was in that scenario that they think mentor mentor could have hugged him and gotten the hairs on the coat that way yeah so it's not necessarily that she was there but it was the day of i don't know um another book called murder in hollywood solving a silent screen mystery by charles higgum um theories theorizes that she did visit taylor late at night after mabel norman had left and that she once again sort of threw her herself at him but this time she kind of upped the ante and she also threatened to shoot him or herself if he didn't fuck her basically uh he actually sort of hugged her to calm her down and that he speculates that might have been when the gun accidentally went off so she speculates that she went there just kind of not really intending to do anything but just being a making a scene or right. threatening to get what she wanted basically right that's like the more dramatic version of well i'm pregnant right um so there was some speculation that the bullet hole wasn't 
wasn't aligned between his vest and his jacket, and that powder burns indicated he was shot at close range while his arm was raised, like as if he was hugging someone. Could have been defensive. Um, And it was also coming from someone who was five feet tall or a little over five feet tall. I think that they did say the person who was seen leaving that night was sort of described as being a short on the shorter side. And they said that had a feminine gait. Right. So uh, another thing sort of backing up this theory is that Mary had done a similar thing uh, the year before. She had a temper tantrum at her home and she locked herself in her room with her mom's gun and shot and fired shots, uh, played dead. And then when the family came in and were all upset that she may have shot herself, she jumped up and laughed as, as if it was a huge fucking joke. She's like the original Harold uh, <clears throat> from Harold and Maude. Right. Um, so she had a history of kind of using the gun to sort of get attention or get what she, she wanted. She was a messy bitch who lived for drama. Yes. Um, the fake suicide incident or whatever was actually um, in the Shelby family home. Shelby is the name of her mom, the last name of her mom. Um, And it was there after the murder happened that they found a soft-nosed lead bullet, which was the same type and weight as the bullet that killed Taylor. Wow. Um, And that was according to some grand jury testimony in 1937. Now, uh, Mary did make end up making four more films for Paramount, but she uh, did not have her contract renewed, and she kind of just was never that great of an actress. She sort of gave up her career, uh, married a kind of wealthy businessman, and died in wealthy obscurity in Santa Monica, California in 1984. That's she lived that. a long life. Yeah. Okay, let's get to Charlotte Shelby, who was Mary's mother. Sure. Charlotte Shelby was uh, the typical stage mom. She was an ex-actress who kind of was living out her her fantasy of career sex success through her daughter. Um, <clears throat> she was very overprotective and invasive in her daughter's life, uh, and she was not happy about her daughter's obsession with Taylor. Um, Sidney Kirkpatrick wrote a book called Cast of Killer, with Cast of Killers, which kind of goes through. Um, that's the book that I mentioned before that was sort of written on director King Veter's notes. Um, and this is where, uh, the theory that Shelby was actually the one who dressed as a man and slipped into, um, Taylor's bungalow, found Mary there and that she killed Taylor at that moment in the night. Now, Shelby had a history of confronting men with a gun. Shelby, so (laughs) Charlotte Shelby is a bad, bad bitch. Okay. So wait, like mother, like daughter. Well, but she actually, I think, meant it. She but I has, mean, like, they both used the gun. Right. It's threaten. the same gun okay. throughout all of this. Uh, when Mentor was a teenager, she actually became involved with another director and became pregnant by this director. Whoa. And Shelby apparently um, not only paid for the abortion, she is said to have threatened the director, whose name was James Kirk, Kirkwood, with the 38. During the making of A Cumberland Romance, um, she also... Uh, went into Mary's dressing room at the time with a Smith and Wesson revolver, and she had caught an actor in there with the daughter in like a passionate embrace, <laughs> and also threatened him with a gun. Blue, his name was Monty Blue. He ran out of the room, and Shelby took Mary home. Uh, later on that evening, she is said to have burst into Taylor's office and screamed, "If I ever catch you hanging around Mary again, I'll blow your goddamn brains out!" Whoa! So just about any man who. Showed any interest in Mary, even if it was like like Taylor, sort of a more innocent thing. 
she kind of brought this fucking wrath down on them and she had the gun and anger to kind of What was go her for problem? It. I think she was a bitter ex-actress who saw her daughter as an investment and she didn't want her career being ruined by any scandalous sex and I mean, her yeah. daughter was also a teenager. Like, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, it's a little overboard, uh, but I don't know. Um, so, so um, in 1920, she actually did show up at Taylor's bungalow late one night with the 38 Smith and Wesson blue steel revolver, uh, demanding to know where where Mary was. Yeah, uh, Mary was not there. But, um, anyways, that's like another incident where she threatened Taylor with a gun. Uh, in 1937, Shelby was finally questioned about the, the uh, Taylor case. So that's like almost 17 years later. This testimony actually came from a civil lawsuit between Shelby and her other daughter named Margaret Fillmore. So it had nothing to do with the actual case. It was a completely separate thing. Just like, yo, my uh, mom's uh, crazy. Right. Uh, she said that she had protected Charlotte against the tar- Taylor murder case um, and that... Shelby was not home the night of the murder and she was afraid Mary would run off with Taylor and that that's why she went there to kill him. Now, obviously Shelby denies that. Um, she denied her daughter's accusation. Um, but Shelby's non-family member alibi for the night of the murder was an actor named Carl Stockdale. And he also received a lifetime income from Shelby <laughs> to say to he provided his alibi and then he happened to get a lifetime income from Shelby where he was paid $200 a month for life. So it was kind of like, well, why? Right. Um, Shelby, Shelby's mother and Mintner's grandmother, a woman named Julia's mile miles is said to have taken the revolver and thrown it to a bayou near her plantation in Louisiana, uh, shortly after the murder. That's a long way to drive that gun. Right. Or maybe that's where she, yeah, someone had to ran there. It's not like you're going to mail a gun, gun in the mail. Yeah. Right. Uh, in Cast of Killers, the book I mentioned before, a detective and director, King Veter, revealed that the gun was later retrieved from the bayou. Uh, a former district attorney named Buran Fitz killed himself with an identical 38 Smith & Wesson revolver, uh, which has never been found since. So there's just like all this weird stuff with the gun. Um, uh, another district attorney, Asa Keys, questioned Mary Miles Minter in 1926, asking if her mother had ever threatened to kill William Desmond Taylor. Um, William uh, Mintner said that she did not believe her mother killed him, uh, but she did say, not definitely. She may have said, I'll kill him, I'll kill him, something like that. She was always going to kill somebody. <laughs> okay, so that's the end of Charlotte Shelby. Now, this is sort of like the craziest one, and this is sort of the last suspect I'm going to go into. Uh, I mentioned way back the actress Margaret Gibson. Yeah. Okay. I remember. So there's a really good website. If you want to go a, do a deep dive into this case, there's an, a website called Taylorology that's run by a man named Bruce Long, who is like, like the Taylor historian. Like it is insane. I actually that, went there to get a lot of information. And I was like, this is too much for me to go into. That's there a were, very niche thing to be. There were into. hundreds of documents and he has like a newsletter. It's like a real deep dive, but it, it is kind of interesting. So if you want to go check it out, you should definitely check it out. Uh, and in 1996, he received um, an email from a man named Ray Long who was not related to him. Long had been uh, a neighbor of a little old woman who was sort of a recluse and sort of never had left her house, had groceries delivered, et cetera. This is a woman he knew as the name. Um, her name was Pat Lewis. She was a widow and a friend of his mother's. Uh, 
according to this woman in 1964, she, um, converted to Roman Catholicism and at some point in her life was having a heart attack, I guess in 1964. At the time she asked for a priest to come so she could confess her sins. Yeah. Uh, at that point there was no priest available. So she made it a, you know, in quotes, deathbed, uh, confession, um, saying that she had once been a silent film actress and that she had shot and killed a man named William Desmond Taylor. Now when, um, Ray Long was hearing the story. He didn't know who that was. Yeah. No one did. Uh, and Long's mother revealed to him uh, another evening that she and Pat Lewis were once watching a show on television when a, uh, a story on the Taylor murder case aired. And Lewis became hysterical and said that she'd killed him and thought it was long forgotten. She was like in a panic that this Whoa. story was sort of up again. Um, according to Ray, my mother never once said a word to any of us about this incident at the time. <clears throat> that woman was actually Margaret Gibson. Wow. So she had a completely new name. Um, now, Gibson had a troubled life of her own at the time. She uh, had been arrested numerous times for vagrancy and opium, opium dealing in 1917. She had um, been involved in what was then called a disorderly house, which is basically a brothel. So she, uh, at the time when she was arrested for that, she actually said she was picking up local color to be in a movie. So it was like doing research kind of thing, <laughs> which is awesome. She was acquitted of that charge, but she kind of had her name out there as being sort of like not the not, most savory character. Yeah. Um, in 1923, she was arrested again for federal, federal felony charges that were um, because she was involved in some kind of blackmail and extortion ring. Those charges were also dropped. Um, so other than the fact that they had worked together at some point, there was really no connection to why she would have murdered him. Uh, th there's no like, uh, you know, no indication motive. of a romance that went bad or anything like that. The only thing that could possibly be the case was that because she was involved in some blackmailing ring uh, that maybe and drugs that maybe yeah. there was some connection there, whatever, Possibly. but it's still a crazy thing for this woman, this old woman to confess to. Okay. So overall, uh, over 300 people across the United States at some point confessed to this murder. Shut up. Yeah. It was like an insane, I mean, at the time, including um, Max Sennett, the director I mentioned earlier. Did uh, they confess like a deathbed confession or just? No, just like people, like crazy people going in because it was a big story at the time. And Max Sennett uh, confessed on his deathbed too as being the man in woman's clothing who shot Taylor because according to him, he was queer. And <clears throat> he stole Mabel by giving her drugs. So for some reason, he blamed Taylor, or at least in this deathbed confession. I don't think right. it's accurate at all. Um, so as I said before, the only thing we really know is that this is an unsolved, this is a cold case still. Wow. Um, like I said, most people, and according to King Veter, and I kind of go with this too. I feel like Charlotte Shelby, the mother of Mary, is probably the one who did it. She seems the most unhinged, and <clears throat> yeah, uh, and all of the evidence seems to be pointing has in her the direction gun too. And even the um, Taylorology website that I I mentioned kind of also hints that that's probably what most likely happened. But you should definitely go uh, take a deep dive there if you're interested. Um, this this um, murder has kind of been in pop culture throughout time. Like uh, it's sort of, even Did though we don't know the, no, but even though we don't know the movie, it has sort of influenced things right. over time, including um, Sunset Boulevard is one of them oh, that sort of, of used some things from that. Uh, 
her name is Norma Desmond. So like that name is sort of an homage to that. Um, so uh, there was a, a movie called Hollywood Story that sort of was a ripoff of Sunset that Boulevard, but more clearly based on uh, Taylor's movie. I don't know that movie. Yeah. Gore, Gore Vidal wrote a novel called Hollywood that's a fictionalized account of the murder. Um, there's a, there's a, do you know the Jerry Herman musical Mac and Mabel? No. Okay. I don't think it's one of his more famous ones. Uh, I definitely know it, but that also kind of talks about it a bit and it's based on uh, Mac Sennett and Bernadette Peters paid, played Mar- uh, Mabel Norman. Yeah. In it. And then another, there is a character based on William Desmond Taylor. Um, on the 40th or 140th anniversary of his birth, his hometown of Ireland actually established a film festival called Taylor Fest. So he is kind of one of their most famous right. residents or ex-residents. Um, and then the bungalows where he was murdered were actually demolished in the 60s. So the murder location right now is basically a parking lot near Alvarado and Mal- uh, Maryland streets. And the parking lot over times have <laughs> over the time, over the years has had a pick and save an alpha beta supermarket. And in 2017, right now you can find a, a Ross and a dollar tree. <laughs> so not quite as glamorous as it once was. It's not a very glamorous area of town. So that's it. That's all my info. That was a lot, right? <laughs> It was a lot. That's a lot of suspects, too. Right. But don't you agree? It seems like the mom, right? It's totally the mom. I feel like it's either the drug dealers. Like, that. I can buy right. into that. I like, could buy into the drug dealers. If he's story. really kind of going after them in a hardcore way. Not uh, very smart. Right. But there I'll, weren't a lot of gangster movies, maybe. I mean, I'm sure there were, but it wasn't like. Although, like, drug-related deaths don't seem very old school. Well, yeah. I mean, like, But if that was, like, if you think about it, drugs back then were more mob. Yeah, that's true. And isn't that insane ghost story though? The ghost story. <laughs> when I was reading so it, I, when crazy. I was reading it, I was like you. I was like, this cannot be going where I think it's going. Oh like, my god, I can't believe it. He and then he didn't even try and change his accent either. He used right. the like most conspicuous it's like accent. It's, it's insane. so stupid. Um, I love dumb criminal stories. Right, that's pretty dumb. It's so dumb. Okay, so that's that. Um, wow. Yeah, that's a lot. Sorry, that was like long. No, I actually, I went into it thinking it was going to be a shorter one, but then it was just so much information. When I went to that website, Taylorology, I was like, oh, fuck. Like, (laughs) I was like, I'm going to find some really good juicy details. And I was like, oh, there's like, it was so overwhelming. I was like, dude, how is this guy so invested in this story? But he got that, that crazy confession story. So I guess it was worth it. But yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, We've already thanked our Patreons, but definitely follow us on social media. We'll be posting pictures. Yes. On Instagram. Instagram and, and follow us on Twitter. And then join the Facebook group. Yeah. And we'll talk more and maybe we'll share some stories from Taylorology. Okay. I like Taylorology. It's like, do you think Taylor Swift was like, hey. Hey, guys. <laughs> hey, guys. Dude, <laughs> She's going to sue them. That's um, like this guy's whole life. I know. That's hilarious. You have to go check it out. I have never seen an I just imagine it like a GeoCities type It is layout. like the literally the most basic 1990s. Like the website That's has not changed. That's how I imagine the yeah. layout of it. It's insane. But yeah, wow. we're definitely worth checking out okay, if you're cool. bored. I will. Bye. Bye.